Then 14th of February, Wednesday breakfast. Here we are. We're about to go into a live show. Happy birthday, Patty. Thank you. Dear. I was going to sing the song, but I'll avoid that. I was trying to leave a bit of suspense there for later on in the show. <laughs> um, later on in the show, towards the end, you get to hear a little bit about um, what the civic imagination and its role it plays in creating our space that we live in, especially in an urban centre. And Dr. Vincent will be in to talk about that. And it is um, subscriber week uh, here at 3CR right now, as in on the 14th of February until um, I think the 20th or this Sunday. Uh, 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe if you want to subscribe. But we had a chat with Loretta, one of the staff here uh, at 3CR, um, just about why you should subscribe to 3CR. And we're going to speak to Emily Vanderstock. And uh, she's made, had done a presentation at the um, Citizen Science Conference on coal dust in northern New South Wales mining towns and what the citizens have done to address that. Mm -hmm. Coming in, Dr Nick Rose to talk about the Urban Agricultural Forum that's happening around on the 23rd of February. If you're listening in past that date, stay tuned because there's plenty of happening in the urban agricultural scene at the moment. So get your thumbs in and ears in and get into the garden. And if you're wondering what's happening on Manus Island, uh, we'll be speaking with uh, Sister Jane Keogh, who's spent time on Manus just last year, in October last year, and has been a refugee advocate for quite a few years. So she'll tell us about her work and what she saw and experienced on Manus. And uh, also I went along to an exhibition at uh, the Footscray Arts Centre called Rohingya Refugee in Crisis, and that was last Thursday. And uh, I'm going to be speaking to some of the people that were there, but also to Habarabhan, who's a Rohingya refugee advocate, who's written a book about the experience of his people and has been invited to um, the European Parliament to give a presentation and is waiting to hear if he gets a visa from Australia. So last Thursday, as I said, I went to the exhibition opening and I hadn't been to Footscray Community Arts Centre before and it is just a fabulous venue, just, just the place itself was amazing and uh, lots of people turned out for the exhibition opening, um, LEMC's band was playing, lots of uh, good energy but of course the intention of the exhibition was serious. And uh, at the beginning I, I caught up with Martin Payton who's the new director and CEO of Footscray Community Art. And I asked him, you know, this is his first exhibition that he's kind of overseen, and I asked why it was so important. The crisis of the Rohingya people, it's something that has a sort of a history in planning with this centre, and I think the timing as it happens, sadly, is such that it's a, it's a very important collection of works to show. Is there a, a big Rohingya community here in Footscray? Well, not just specifically Footscray, but the West and, uh, and other parts of Melbourne too. My name's Alison Richards. I'm a past chair of the centre. I was on the board for a very long time in the late 80s and to mid-90s. And one of the things I think is really important about Footscray Community Arts Centre is that we're not afraid of committed art and a committed approach to art. What brings you out tonight? We were quite interested to come down to our local community arts centre, but also that this is a new exhibition, so we really wanted to get a bit more educated about the Rohingya. We've been uh, involved with, with certain activist groups and things in the past, so uh, this is probably one of the, the biggest humanitarian issues in the world at the moment, and um, 
if we can in some small way support the cause, uh, we thought we'd do that. I work with a group of people that are really interested in, um, in the well-being of um, our cultural diverse community, so we've come together as a... Um, as a group from work. We work together so for very similar reasons. We care about the community and the Rohingya people as well. I feel quite moved by the issue of statelessness in a more global context and I feel that this genocide in contrast to others that have happened in recent history has received quite little international attention and it's interesting to see stuff like this being done about it so I wanted to come down and have a look and to, to support the artist. Habibur Rahman is a Rohingyan refugee he spoke at the opening of the exhibition and I caught up with him to find out more about the situation of his people. The, the crisis of Rohingya is still continuing. The killing is not a stop. The burning of Rohingya houses is not a stop. The confinement and the abuse against Rohingya community is not a stop. So it is very important that we keep the uh, campaign on, like this kind of Rohingya photo exhibition done by Ali MC. We need more people getting involved because we have uh, nearly one million people has been displaced and we just have left another 300,000 to 500,000 people. They are also uh, systematically trapped in the country as well. And uh, what would you like the Australian government to do? The Australian government can actually pressurize uh, through UN, United Nations Security Member Council and also uh, abandon providing military aid to Burmese government and end the crisis uh, on the ground and provide humanitarian assistance on the ground as well. Is there anything else that, that can be done? What would you like to see happen? So there is in need of international intervention and an international peacekeeping force to be on the ground because the people has been killing and dying daily and then their livelihood and their their right everything has been blocked out in there. So we really want to see this uh, the stop this kind of crisis. The Australia has already provided a lot of humanitarian support. Foreign Minister Julia Bishop has already announced uh, humanitarian aid. So we can do more uh, to ease the crisis. And I understand in November last year there was. Uh an agreement signed between Bangladesh and Myanmar about people returning, saying that uh, Rohingya people could now return uh, to Myanmar. Is that the case? Burmese government has been trying to avoid international pressure throughout signing a fake uh, repatriation agreement. They've done the same thing as 1978 and 1991. They agreed to repatriate back of the people, those free from Burma. But the promises, the agreement, the fact that are written on the agreement, we are not delivered. We have 150,000 people trapped in 42 concentration camps. The, these people need to be freely able to travel everywhere. And their livelihood, their right of medication and education and uh, right to return to their origin of location that and we can know then that the situation has been improved but this is just a fake agreement like they done in 1978 and 1991 92 so there is no hope and no sign that uh, the the crisis could be stopped Right, and so you're thinking an international peacekeeping force might be an answer. Yeah, international peacekeeping force and international humanitarian intervention, that is the solution. The Security Council has to make decisions uh, because now not only Burmese government, but the majority of Buddhism community, they don't want Rohingya existence. They say there is no Rohingya, they don't want Rohingya living in Burma and Burmese government as well. So this is very clear sign, the people and the land and this, they are right and everything should be separated. That's why Security Council have to make urgent decision to form some kind of safe zone or safe region for these people. So Habib, I understand you have a book coming out. 
Uh, yeah, the book uh, in English, it is uh, translated in English, is like Fast They Erase Our Name. So it is going to be published in French by Fast of March. So I'm uh, waiting for the visa to be granted by Immigration Department of Australia here. And uh, hopefully I could deliver a speech at European Parliament. They already sent, like European Parliament and Belgian Parliament has already sent me invitation. So I'm still waiting for a visa to be granted from Immigration Department. So I can spread what happened to our people and genocide and the situation condition. Because it is good uh, that European country can add more. And it is good to talk about our people and what's going on on, on the ground situation in there. The world leader, everyone uh, get involved on time. And solve the crisis. So that's why I'm hoping to go to Europe. And that was Habib Rahman speaking about his book, First They Race Our Name, and uh, his hope to get a visa to go to Europe to address the European Parliament about the plight of his people. So I guess we have to, to really hope that uh, that comes through. There was an article about it in The Guardian uh, just a few days ago. So uh, if anyone's interested, uh, check that out. And do go along to Footscray Community Arts Centre. Fantastic exhibition, very moving, and uh, yeah, you learn a lot, you mm. learn a lot. Coming up uh, shortly, we're going to be speaking to um, Sister Jane Keel, who's a, a Brigidine sister, and uh, she's done a lot of refugee activism and been at Man- on Manus Island just uh, in October last year, so that's up next. Mm, you're listening to 3CR. you got to remember, Nainok's a special day for us, fellas. Mind who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcast. Happy Nadoff! So, coming up next is Sister Jane Keogh. She's a Brigidine nun, a refugee advocate and also one of the founders of Manus Lives Matter, which uh, puts out a, a newsletter. And uh, she lives in Canberra, but she's been in Melbourne, and I caught up with her on Monday just to, to find out a bit more about her advocacy. But first of all, I wanted to know how she became involved in this work for refugees. I had just finished being a school principal for 26 years. I moved to Canberra to look after my mum, who had Alzheimer's. And at about the same time, we had the Tampa incident, And I was politically pretty unaware, but I was kind of outraged and upset at Australia's response to refugees and at the lies that were told about them throwing their children overboard. And so I became interested in the refugee issue and I worked on the computer and I also visited the Baxter Detention Centre in Adelaide 99 times over the next four or five years. I thought, I better find out what this is about. I had no idea whether the refugees in detention were telling real stories, whether they were in danger. I had never met a Muslim. I didn't know anything about it. So I thought, I'll go and hear them. So I got to know them and I got to know their stories. And the more I got to know them, the more outraged and and upset I became at how we were treating them. 
So that started my involvement with refugees. And since then, what kind of things have you done? Like what action have you taken from your position as a Brigidine nun? Living in my mother's house, we had a little granny unit on the back of the house. So when a few detainees got out of Baxter, they came to live with us. I've probably had about a dozen over the last 12 years in and out, either in my mother's house or in the little retirement village unit I have now. I gradually became part of a big network. Uh, there was even a little anti-deportation league. Because the government used to deport people illegally, we had a little scheme of trying to notice when the planes came into Port Augusta and people would watch at the airport and report them. And sometimes we were successful at getting a court order in Perth so that on their way they were stopped and not deported. Then I saw the guys on Manus and I saw them on Nauru and I could see that a lot of the understanding and sympathy was going towards the families and the children on Nauru. I remembered from my work with a lot of the single men on Baxter how alone they are without family and I joined Facebook and I gradually got to know the other activists who were working for them and I gravitated towards helping those who were Pakistani or Afghani because they were the ones that I had most in my house and whose stories I knew. And I had actually researched and helped some of them go to the Refugee Review Tribunal. So I understood the country, I understood the problems. Then I joined a faith-based group from the Refugee Action Committee in Canberra. And three of us decided that we would set up a group to send phone credit and parcels to the men on Manus. There was born Manus Lives Matter. And that's the name of your newsletter, Manus Lives Matter. When I was in Baxter, I used to watch, and those who had good English and who knew lots of Australians got a lot of support, but those that didn't have English, and there were a lot of them were Afghanis, they, they were the last ones to get support and help. So I wanted to find, among the refugees, people who knew the people there who would need most help. So I selected one of the guys who was posting a lot on Facebook and got to know him. So he became the person who would alert us to people with need. We could respond to needs at the time. You could respond immediately, which makes a big difference. Yes. I've been to Manus twice for about two weeks each time, so I've got to know the guys and be next to them. The main one we work with, he's 28 or so, he has a master's degree in business and finance. He worked for the Bank of Dubai in a big city in Pakistan and he used to help an NGO group and they were giving um, vaccinations against polio and the Taliban decided they were doing birth control and so he was targeted and his older parents were also threatened. So he had to leave because it was a danger to his family, not just to him. So watching not only his suffering, but the suffering his, of his parents, who no longer had a breadwinner helping them. Not only do the men suffer, but they, they are part of the suffering of their family. For every one person in detention, there's a whole family out there suffering, whose whole lives are turned upside down. And if you've just tuned in, we've been speaking with Sister Jane Keogh, Brigidine Nunn, and an activist supporting, supporting refugees on Manus Island. In the next section of the interview, she talks about some of the health problems she's seen. And just a warning to listeners, some of these might be disturbing. So uh, exercise caution. Manus Lives Matter is mostly trying to address the needs of those who have been ill with psychiatric illness, but mostly um, physical illness. One of the men that I met up there, 
he was having a bit of a breakdown. I tried to get help from him. PNG Immigration wouldn't help. Australian Border Force said it's PNG's problem, don't come to us. Here I was at one stage left with him in the back of a car trying to help him and he's imagining everyone's attacking him. No one would help. And, and this was just last year, I think, wasn't it? Yes, this, this was last year. This was October. He was a person who had been tortured in his home country. And when we came, I came across him, I was helping some other Tamils and I was actually staying in a motel with a few of them. And they got word that he had been seen running through the town naked and they knew he was in big trouble. But because he'd been isolated in a different section from where they were, they weren't allowed to go and get him. He wasn't answering his phone. So it took a lot of work to try and actually make contact with him and get to him, and he was quite delusional at the time. So we brought him back to the hotel. We finally got him a doctor even, and the doctor said to him, if you weren't drinking and taking drugs, this wouldn't be happening to you. Now, all his friends tell me he's not into drugs and he's not into drink. And here he was in delusional state, and the one doctor he was taken to made him so bad. We had him calm that morning, and when he went to the doctor, he came back, and it took us all day to get him back. So the fact that there's not medical help or understanding there is huge, because you have all these people in trauma getting this terrible response to their illnesses. Then we found out why. We found out, first of all, that they had known that he was running naked through the town and was upset for a week and no one had done anything. So no one responds. They don't know how to the locals and the the officials don't care. Then we found out what had brought on the latest episode where he wouldn't answer his phone. He had just witnessed his roommate attempt suicide and, and this set him off. He couldn't tell us that at first. He was too distraught. So we found out that this is what had triggered his current episode. They had to stay up with him all night watching him because he'd go in and out of this paranoia. The next morning I got up in the next room to them and they came in and they said it's bad news I said what has happened I thought he'd committed suicide or he'd run amok in the town and we couldn't he'd harm himself or others oh they said it's not him it's his roommate it's the one that attempted suicide they found him hanging outside the hospital so he had been witness to this attempted suicide and his friend suiciding and he'd had a breakdown and nobody cared Australia didn't care, PNG immigration didn't care and didn't know. It was quite horrific to know this is what's happening to all of them. At the moment there's a man there that has epileptic fits and he has now brain damage from the epilepsy. No one is bringing him to Australia or to any other country where he can get help. PNG doesn't have the psychiatric help. But it's not just the psychiatric help, it's the people having a heart attack. I've sat up at night here with someone on Manus in the middle of heart pain who'd already had a heart attack, ringing doctors here, ringing Australian Border Force, trying to get on, ringing immigration, all night with Australian doctors, and not only me, I was only on the periphery of it, trying to get help to this man in the the middle of a possible heart attack. No one on Manus would help him. In the end, someone did come about four hours later and took him in a car to the hospital. When he got to the hospital, there was no doctor there. Not only was there no doctor, there was no one to take his blood or to take his particulars and to find out if he had or had not had a heart attack. So he had water and then he came back home. One young guy um, I'm most worried about has had chronic back pain. He has something pressing on a sciatic nerve. It took one year of them keeping on saying to him, your x-rays show nothing, just take the painkillers. 
and him saying, I need an MRI, something is wrong. Eventually they took him to Moresby. They did do an MRI. The doctor said to him, you have a tear and a pressing on a nerve. No wonder you are in pain. There are about 100 to 120 that they did take to Moresby to get medical help, but most of them would wait more than a month before they saw anybody. And even if they got a diagnosis, they weren't helped. One other guy there has a had an operation for kidney stones about 10 months ago, 12 months ago, and they put in a drainage tube. It was supposed to come out in six weeks. They didn't take it out. It's now 10 or 11 months, and every night he bleeds, he has pain, he can't move, he has bladder problems, and we are working with lawyers, we're working with doctors, we've got doctors for refugees. Nobody can get him help. So he suffers day in, day out, no help. It must be difficult to see these things, yet you continue to be involved. Why? I can't do anything else. And I think the government's not realising that there are thousands of Australians in my situation. So you mentioned earlier your newsletter, Manus Lives Matter. How can people access the newsletter if they want to read it? Well, because it's mainly for people who are not on Facebook, they could email me regular information. It's only, only The newsletter only comes out about every two months, but it's very comprehensive and it gives you lots of things that are happening. But if you wanted to support the men, if you wanted to know anything, you can email me on Jane I. Keogh. Keogh is How do you spell Keogh? Keogh is K-E-O-G-H. It's J-A-N-E-I-K-E-O-G-H at gmail.com. And you can ask me anything you like and I can tell you or I can send you the newsletter or I can answer your questions. And that was um, Sister Jane Keogh, a Bridgetine nun, and as you can hear, uh, an advocate, a passionate advocate for refugees. And uh, the newsletter is particularly for people who aren't on Facebook because they did realise that's a lot of people not getting the information who really wanted to get involved. But if you do want to Facebook information, you can just Google Jane Irene Keogh and uh, look for the person in a tent in front of Parliament House. Where else would she be? And uh, you can ask to become a friend. My name is Selva Coolidge-Shelvin and I am fighting for my life. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government in our name treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. 10am every Sunday at 3CR 855 on the AM dial. So say I'm not a worthless human being Cause no one needs a worthless human being My family need a worthwhile human being That's one
Spinifex Gum with Urala on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital and 3cr.org.au. And Spinifex Gum, including some members uh, of the Cat Empire, it's a bit of a uh, project in collaboration uh, with Malia, a choir of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander teenage girls uh, from Gondwana, uh, choirs and directed by Lynn Williams. They're going to be performing at Monash University in Clayton at the Robert Blackwood Hall on Sunday 11th of March at 7pm and ticket prices uh, are $79 and if you want to find out more about those, the website is spinifexgum.com. Up up next we have Dr Nick Rose on the line to talk about urban agriculture and the forum that's happening on the 23rd to 24th of February Um, and also to talk a little bit about the movement that's happening in the call to arms and a declaration that was put out by Nick and his colleagues. Um, Nick Rose is a specialist in the emerging field of sustainability and food systems and the related fields of food sovereignty and food security. Um, thanks for joining us, Nick. It's great to have you on the line. Great to be with you all. Good morning. Now, this food agricultural, um, urban food, urban agricultural um, forum that's coming up, could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, there's a lot around it and you've attached, is it, I believe, a de- declaration to this? That's right. So this is the second time we've done this. This is the second National Urban Agriculture Forum. We did the first one at Burnley campus of Melbourne University back in November 2016. Had about 100 and, uh, 150 people across two days. This time we're expecting about 200 people across the two days at William Anglis Institute in the city near Flagstaff Gardens. And we've got no fewer than about 60 different presenters talking about a whole range of topics. And really there's there's three goals of this. One is to recognise, acknowledge and celebrate urban agriculture as a movement and all the uh, huge numbers of people and organisations that are involved in growing or raising some of their own food, you know, be that for their own consumption or in some kind of commercial sense, um, to share and disseminate new research and best practice and to inform and shape policy program and practice development and implementation. And I guess that's the the idea behind the manifesto, behind the declaration, because uh, uh, we we really uh, feel and know that there are you know so many people around Melbourne, around the country that are that are doing this, that are doing it um, on their own time, uh, bootstrapping it, and it's you know the benefits of it are so are so massive that we really think it's about time that the state government stepped up and, mm-hmm. and really you know got behind this, recognised it, and planning frameworks. Uh, made land available for people to grow food and actually resourced it properly as happens in other places around the world. Mm. So Nick, just to unpack urban agriculture, what is that what is that entitled? What does that encompass? So urban agriculture is really um, uh, cities feed the idea of cities feeding themselves, which is pretty fundamental to the whole question of sustainability. Uh, if we're looking forward into this century, we, you know, as a species, humanity has just passed the the tipping point, if you like, of, of being a predominantly kind of country or, or rural based species to, to being one that you know congregates uh, in cities in urban conurbations. We, we passed that point a couple of years ago, and the projections are that um, all that's going to intensify. Um, more and more of us are going to be living in, in towns and cities. Um, and at the same time, the way we've been farming has, uh, has led to a lot of you know, soil degradation, pressures on water tables, loss of biodiversity and so on. So uh, we really need to be uh, looking at how we, how we sustain 
um, city populations and, and in places like you know, Melbourne, a lot of our best soils are actually very close to the city. So uh, we've got to be looking at ways to protect that. So so urban agriculture is, you know, the, the broad spectrum of, of people engaged from growing, you know, some herbs in your balcony to a veggie patch in your back garden to raising some chooks to then things like hydroponics, aquaponics, uh, and then going a little bit further out to, to market gardens and places like, you know, Werribee South and, and Pakenham. Mm, it seems like it's really got some groundswell, urban ag. Everyone's got a green thumb planting things. Who are you bumping into? As the city space gets a little bit smaller, it seems like people are thinking of different ideas to green up their space. Um, are you looking towards Vancouver, um, different areas to put pressure on the government to save up land? Because at the moment, it would be quite a tough ask in Melbourne where prices are rising at a dramatic rate to uh, be able to afford to grow food in that area and make it a viable option. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point, and I'm glad you mentioned Vancouver because that's the international keynote speaker, Dr. Lenore Newman from the University of the Fraser Valley from British Columbia, who's a, an expert in perhaps one of the world's leading leading examples of how to look after high-value soils and high-value farmland, and that's the Agricultural Land Reserve that a very visionary government um, in British Columbia, Columbia created in 1972 and has been protected um, and defended for you know, for the 40-odd years since then, and it's created a, you know, a huge diversity of, of uh, a whole range of different food uh, crops and a, a diversified local food economy sustaining thousands and thousands of jobs. And I, I think the, the challenge in Melbourne is that, you know, we're so div- driven by development, by real estate and residential development, that we're not actually valuing our soils, not actually understanding, you know, the, the, the importance that it has for our future food security. So, you know, the idea of something like the Agricultural Land Reserve, or in Toronto, they've got the, the green belt of nearly 2 million acres that surrounds that city, is to take that land outside the real estate market and say, no, that's going to be you know, protected for sustainable food production from now into the into the far future. Uh, and that's, that's, that's so, a real so sort of cultural good. shift. Uh, sorry? I was just going to say, it's so good to see these initiatives because we have kind of models <laughs> that we can look to and we can see how it's been done other places. Exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, that's the value of bringing someone like Lenore out who's kind of researched and studied this and also been an advocate for its protection because, you know, um, uh, in, in a city like Vancouver, real estate prices there are also high and developers are, uh, are been eyeing off this, um, yeah, been eyeing <laughs> off this land and wanting to kind of unlock it for, you know, subdivision um, as has happened, you know, with the, with the sprawl of Melbourne and, and Sydney and our city. So, yeah, it's a great, it's a great leading example from around the world of uh, how to do this properly and uh, and really to, to and this is what we're about really as an organisation and what this movement is about is, is really valuing food and the people who grow and produce the food and saying you know it's, it's so fundamental to our, our future well-being um, and we've just lost sight of that you know become so disconnected from food and again that's what urban agriculture is about is kind of closing that loop and, and bringing us back closer to the source of our you know our health and well-being and in fact our life. Mm. And so what are the, we're running out of time, but I was hoping to hear what are some of those steps that are needed to be taken here in Melbourne to put that pressure um, on government to ensure a safe and viable option of food here within our urban centres? 
Well, I think uh, part of it is uh, is making making food growing just more visible, and so you know, even I'm sure a lot of listeners would know, just walking around suburbs, even in the inner city, you know, where I live in Footscray, Brunswick, lots of places, there are just so many vacant lots that are just you know um, fenced away and just growing weeds on concrete. To to have you know negotiate with developers to make that land available for you know raised bed food production and have have uh, have veg growing all through the suburbs, um, and then at the planning level to actually recognise that kind of use of land as a really permitted and encouraged and valued use. Uh, it would be a temporary or permanent, uh, but to create sort of like a network of dedicated urban farms uh, and to put sort of prote- permanent protections like the Agricultural Land Reserve on some of our really high-value agricultural land uh, in, in what's called the food bowl areas of Melbourne. Those are, those are some critical steps. But then looking at the education system, actually integrating food literacy, food systems literacy for you know, all our kids and young people so they understand where their food comes from and, and what it means. You know, I think it's as important as, as basic numeracy and literacy um, is really a key part of the, the picture as well. Mm. And if people wanted to get down to this event that's happening on the 23rd to the 24th, it's a packed day. And as you said at the top of this interview, it's got a diverse array of activities and information and discussion. Um, how would how can people best get there? Uh, the best way is to go to the website, which is uh, uaf.org.au, where you can check out the program, see the, the range of presentations and papers that are going to be delivered, and you, from there you can go to the uh, the booking system on Eventbrite. As well as the two days on the 23rd and 24th, we've got a fantastic couple of evening events on the Friday, the 23rd, a uh, special local dinner catered by Melbourne Farmers Markets, supporting local producers around Melbourne, and with a, a special conversation between um, Bunarong author... Bruce Pascoe, who wrote Dark Emu, and Attica chef Ben Shuri. And then on the Saturday evening, uh, the co-founder of Permaculture, David Holmgren, who's just released his Retro Suburbia book, uh, in conversation with uh, Somali-born author and speaker Mariam Issa. Um, so those are two special events happening in the evening, uh, also at William Anglis. Mm, it sounds very good, and it, there is a groundswell happening. I think the pressure is mounting. There's that Fairfield Urban Ag it's starting to take shape um, out in Fairfield ways. Dr. Nick Rose, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us and enlightening us a little bit. And hopefully a few people will have the time to get down um, to the discussion, the forum. Thanks very much. Uh, great to be with you. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. You're here on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with Judith, Nick and Patty. G'day, this is Jacob from Friday Rave. If the week's politics have left you wondering whether it's you or the rest of the planet that's gone completely and utterly bonkers, join us at 5 o'clock each and every Friday for a Friday Rave here on 3CR, where we'll do our best to reassure you that it is actually you, and us. A Friday Rave, bringing the 5 o'clock drinks debrief to you, here on Community Radio 3CR. And that's Sydney artist Brendi, uh, Brendan McLean with Fighting Four, and Brendan will be playing alongside a number of other uh, performers up at Lake Mountain Alpine Resort for the festival Gay Times, which is a uh, obviously LGBTI uh, Q A 
plus. I'm not sure which letters everybody wants these days, but all the ones that you want at home, do them in your head. Uh, <laughs> it's a uh, fantastic event and it's uh, put on by uh, Closet Party and supported by a number of organisations, including Creative Victoria, uh, Vanessa, uh, and also Minus 18. And I'll be uh, heading up to that one for, for a day uh, at Lake Mountain. Wow, that sounds amazing. That. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. Well, last Friday, actually, there was a citizen science conference in Adelaide, and um, a Narrabri-based citizen science group, Laird, and I'll have to find out if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Laird, maybe it's Laird of Forest Research Node, has been investigating um, dust levels near the Malls Creek coal mine. Emily Vanderstock presented her finding or their findings at the Citizen Science Conference, and she joins us on the line now to tell us about the project. So welcome to 3CR, Emily. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Good morning, and uh, thanks for getting up early. It's great to have you have you here. So, Emily, can, can you... So, go on. So can you give me some background to the project? Like, how did it all start? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so we're a community-based uh, citizen science group, the Laird Forest Research Node, um, and we're a network of community, of uh, local farmers, of um, kind of subject matter specialists, university students, from city and country. Um, and we're all really concerned about um, the air quality pollution and other kinds of environmental pollution in this rural area. Um, because we're, we're thinking of a place, if you just imagine, uh, it's, it's agriculture, it's in northwest New South Wales, um, and you can see this, this dust cloud every morning, and you're surrounded by coal mines. And so we began by um, uh, thinking, okay, well, well, the dust levels that are here that are being reported are not really reflecting the, the personal experience of the people living here. And the people living here did not necessarily, um, couldn't have uh, trust in the data that was being reported by the mining industries because uh, it's self-reported and self-monitored. And when we looked at those numbers and we dove into those numbers, we found all these uh, negative values, which is impossible in air pollution monitoring. And so we thought, okay, we have to do something. As a community, uh, we deserve to have um, fair uh, access to, to, to knowing what kind of pollution we're exposed to and, and use that to, to grow and empower the community and do that with people from the city and the country working together. So that's kind of where, where we're beginning. Emily, I've got a, uh, a question on the negative values. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about how the, the measurement of, uh, of dust works and what a negative value would imply? Sure. So um, with measuring dust, I'll use dust, but the technical term is particulate matter, um, where we're thinking about these, these specks in the air of like tiny, tiny, tiny fragments of a human hair-sized <laughs> specks in the air. And so when you're measuring this ambient particulate matter, uh, you're measuring stuff in air. So when um, these hundreds of thousands of dollars um, worth of machines called tapered element oscillating microbalances, or TEOMs for short. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wrote it down. I wrote it down. Um, they, when, when, you, when they're reading out negative values, it suggests that 
that, well, that's impossible because you're measuring specks of stuff. So, so, when so, you- so a negative value would be like uh, we've come across some kind of vacuum or black hole in the uh, air here because there's Absolutely. no particulate and- matter. Yeah, and that's a citizen science research project in itself. Like all physics, need to know what's going on here. Um, but yeah, and so, but that's the data that that's recorded and that's uploaded. And then when we looked at that in more depth, we, in depth, we consistently saw more of these uh, negative values, up to uh, about twenty-eight percent of the the rolling averages were negative values in the data, and that caused huge. Um, dips in the overall average of dust that's being reported. And that, that dust that's being reported is kind of suggests what environmental pollution people are exposed to in the area. So, so how did, go on, yeah. sorry. Oh, so just seeing this pattern, it's really caused the concern. Maybe it's uh, a problem with the machines, uh, Maybe, maybe it's something else, but the point is that that data is, is not accurate and reliable and we need to do something about that. So, yes, that's what I was going to ask. So, so what did you actually do? How, did you, how does one go about, as a citizen science group, uh, measuring dust? Well, so we're a, we're a group and we don't have the big hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. So we did what we can, and uh, there's another way of where it, uh, measuring deposited dust, which is very simple. You put a glass funnel inside what is essentially a large glass beer bottle um, and elevate that in the air and leave it out there for a month and then let um, uh, capture all the dust that you find in the air over the month. And that's actually a standard practice um, across Australia for measuring deposited dust. So we did that with communities setting up what we call dust gauges um, at different distances from the mine in the area, and that was a community project. Uh, and that looks at monthly data. The other thing we did was, uh, and this is not necessarily done as a standard way of measuring dust, uh, but it's pretty interesting to see how are the plants and the crops around collecting dust on them. So. We set up some little tomato plants along a, um, different distances from the mine and uh, allowed the, the dust to settle on them for a week. And then after a week, took them back, chopped up their heads and uh, looked at how much dust landed on them. And with that experiment, we actually found that, whoa, whoa, more dust close to the mine than far away from the mine. And that was actually, like, very hashtag science and exciting. Were you surprised <laughs> by those results? <laughs> um, I was not surprised at all. I was surprised <laughs> that, that it worked, but I was not surprised that that is what we found. <laughs> and uh, so I imagine you, you say dust. I imagine some of that, like, dust is made of many things. I'm, you know, as a total non-scientist here, I just, so please forgive me, but I imagine dust is made up of, ma- of many things, so some of which would be coal dust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good um, point, actually. So, so the particulate matter that I spoke of before, that just specks the stuff in the air, and... They're the ones of particular concern are PM10, which is a size 10 microns or less, 
and PM 2.5, which is 2.5 microns or less. And microns is tiny. It's, it's just a tiny, tiny, tiny microscopic speck. But when this gets into your lungs, it's a um, health issue. Like it causes respiratory disorders, respiratory disorders, um, aggravated asthma, non-fatal heart attacks, all sorts of really bad respiratory things. So just even having sex with stuff in the air, whether or not it's from cold, is an issue. Right, um, okay. It's an, it's an added element when it comes from a coal source um, because coal itself carries a lot of um, heavy metals in it. But in these areas, we're not necessarily just talking about coal dust. We're talking about increased amounts of dust. So if we think of a coal mine and all the processes that happen, um, they, they blast the earth and then dig up the coal and that produces dust and then drive it in a truck and that produces dust on the roads and then put it into a train and that produces dust. So there's all these particulates that are flying around purely from having this big industrious digging hole. Look, it sounds uh, worrying and it sounds like really important <laughs> citizen science that you're doing. Unfortunately, Emily, we don't have a lot more time. So um, I just want to thank you very much for coming on the show. And quickly, mm -hmm. have you got some plans to, to address what yes. you found? Just quickly. Absolutely. So uh, we're actually doing some more citizen science up in the lead forest um, in the Pilga at the moment. Um, we're started on a project of water quality testing, and that's really important. Um, uh, like, this is Gomeroy land. The river is an incredibly important place, and we need to take some baseline data because there are plans to expand, to build an underground mine, to do all sorts of things in this area. Um, so oh. we are doing a water quality testing, uh, calling all citizen scientists, calling people who uh, love journalism, who uh, just like taking photos, who just want to experience this place and talk with folk out there and see what's going on the ground. And well, well Emily, this is, this is a wonderful invitation. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry to have to wrap it up so quickly. But, you know, there may be another opportunity to speak. So congratulations on your project and your presentation. And thanks for coming on this morning. Thank you so much. And it's something you really uh, have to keep on top of, isn't it, with these uh, with these big companies that they don't... I mean, letting them audit themselves for something that is a public health issue is just ridiculous. Letting them... I mean, even even not-for-profit organisations don't get that uh, uh, that privilege. Mm. And, and uh, not-for-profit organisations that are working with uh, disadvantaged communities are arguably far more, um, uh, you know, more trustworthy than a big multinational uh, you know, fossil yes. fuel company. And they are a multinational mine. And the Malls Creek area is a really beautiful area. And I think the mining there is fairly recent. But as I said, Emily, this is something to follow up on. Mm. It's good to hear someone getting out there and doing some grassroots scientific research. You're here on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite t-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Right here on 3CR.
Napalm there of Hiatus Coyote uh, and that is Jekyll and they're playing at an upcoming uh, Zoo Twilight so if you're uh, into the zoo uh, and you want to get down there for some music I think it's on March uh, 11th uh, but you can find that out by visiting the Zoo's Victoria uh, website. Big time and in that video clip we played that cheekily off YouTube for the broadcast a bit of behind the scenes knowledge but it was a bit of a who's zoo in the soul scene here in Melbourne but right now we have a very big member of the zoo here at 3CR Radio. (laughs) (laughs) We have Loretta O'Brien. Welcome, Loretta. Your office and finance coordinator here. But before that, how did you get involved with 3CR Radio? Um, Well, I first became aware of 3CR, I guess, in the 90s at um, protests, particularly. I remember hearing about the MUA protests and asking someone how do you find out what the updates are when the you know when you need to get down to the docks and they said you listen to 3CR I'm like what's that so <laughs> that was the first time we just had a pub conversation um, and then uh, obviously just after that through campaigns I was very involved in anti-uranium activity and we had a very big protest at North Limited down um, on St Kilda Road during the time we we're trying to stop the Jabaluka uranium mine and um, I, rem- I remember that remember campaign. Those, yeah, there yeah. Are, and so we, we shut it down for a whole week um, and we had live broadcasts every morning from 3CR. So I think maybe that was the first time I was interviewed on 3CR because I was coordinating in that com- campaign. So, yeah, and then after that, being an anti-Uranium campaigner, you down the road at Friends of the Earth, I spent a lot of time coming up here and being interviewed about our campaign. So, yeah. Uh, so you you were first invited to have a voice here and now you're working here. and Yes. Yeah, big background in that. Advocacy work. Mm. Strong. Um, how long have you been here? To Working here? Yeah. Uh, I started in 2005. I had a little break a couple of years ago, but I came back again because I loved it so much. Oh, it's great. Like three, That's great. 3CR is like a family. So I was the office and finance coordinator for about eight years, and then I was station manager for a couple of years, and then I left, and then I've come back as office and finance coordinator. So, yeah. So you, m- you mentioned your your sort of uh, activisty background, and, and almost everyone here at uh, at 3CR has some background in some community, and um, yours is obviously from the, the ura- uranium and uh, radioactive yeah. uh, sort of uh, activism. Um, but there are a number of uh, a number of groups that you see represented uh, at 3CR, and I'm sure you've seen many over the years. Um, maybe do you want to just talk to us a little yeah. bit about the variety of groups that we have here at 3CR? Yeah, for sure. So I mean, obviously, I I see 3CR as union radio. We have you know. <laughs> a number of unions who are broadcasting here or, or who are affiliate members and um, that's a really important and particularly now more than ever to have a pro-union voice um, in the media particularly we're looking at the last week where um, flags have been banned on work sites and so we really need a strong pushback and 3CR is a really great voice for that pushback so um, and then we have obviously community language broadcasting uh, here as well so we have you know the Ethiopian community uh, we have uh, in the past we've had all sorts of Southeast Asian communities African communities Latin American communities we've still got a lot of Latin American broadcasting here so um, 
And then we have uh, lots of other issues like um, health and disability, um, homelessness um, broadcasting. Um, yeah, so we have um, 3CR has an affiliate structure, so organisations join us and become members. We have over 30 um affiliates at the moment and they um, have shows on 3CR and so we do really represent a wide range of community organisation and we're a federation of those those organisations and yeah so that's how we operate as a, in terms of our structure. And um, I'm thinking that as the um, office uh, finance coordinator you and we're in the middle of a you know, subscriber drive so maybe you could tell us, as a person that's close to that aspect of the work at 3CR, w- what it means for, for the work you do. Why is the subscriber drive important? Well, um, a subscription is actually a membership to 3CR, and I think uh, it's very important for people to realise that membership actually gives you a say in the running of 3CR. So if you're not happy with 3CR, then become a subscriber, join up, become a member, and we have an annual general meeting that you can go to and vote. If you want to, you get elected to representative positions, and um, you can really get involved in um, shaping the direction of 3CR. So we invite, 3CR is unique, we invite our listeners and we invite our volunteers and programmers to all have a say so we've got that structure that um, enables people to have a say about our future. And so that's why it's important to subscribe. For me, more than anything, being a member of an organisation, putting your weight behind um, your passion and actually showing that. But also it's a financial support for the station. So it supports your program. If you really love jazz on a Saturday, then, you know, if you subscribe to that show, it shows us that lots of people like that program and it helps us to get um, an understanding of where the support in the community is. Just quickly, if you are wanting to subscribe, uh, there are a number of ways that you can do it. 3cr.org.au is probably the easiest way right now if you are in front of a computer. Uh, 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. It's $35 for unwaged or concession, uh, $75 for waged, uh, $150 for solidarity or bans, but you can pay any amount that you want. If you if you have uh, a lot of money, if you're feeling philanthropic, uh, you, you can also um, pay larger amounts. Uh, the other ways that you can pay uh, and become a member is, uh, and become a subscriber is, is come into the studios at 21 Smith Street uh, during business hours. Uh, phone the studios during business hours on 94198377 or you can post your details along with your cheque or money order to 3CR uh, at P.O. Box uh, 1477. 1277. 1277. <laughs> Collingwood, <laughs> Collingwood 3066. <laughs> yeah, yeah, get that 14 out of here. 1277, it, everyone. Yeah. And um, Wednesday breakfast, would love to hear some support. I've got a big call out. It happens to be my birthday today, 27th oh, of no. my birthday. I like that you brought that up when we we're nearly at the end of the program. So if, if, we, could get a, if we could get a phone call in from a, a listener to subscribe to the show, that would be great. It might keep me on the air and this show on the air. And this station broadcasting for another year. The social safety net in Australia is being eroded by government cutbacks to essential services and also bullying tactics, as we've seen recently with the Centrelink robo debts, for just one example. This is a public service announcement. Over the Wall wants to offer you some simple tools to fight back and defend yourself against a grossly unfair and aggressive system. A system that penalises people already disadvantaged by poverty and significant health conditions. Tune in every Monday at 7.50am on Monday Brecky for Over the Wall.
We're still waiting for that call, that birthday call. I'm getting a bit lonely. Nine four one nine eight three double seven. If you want to become a subscriber and and wish uh, Patty a happy birthday as well, please do. But before we hear from you, lovely Gab is in the studio. She will take your call. But we're on the phone now with Dr. Vincent Alisi. Um, welcome. Vincent, and thank you for joining us. Um, you're here to discuss the role that artists and the creative practitioners play in the public space as your yeah, lecture morning, series Patrick. that's coming out at the NGV on this Thursday that looks at the new civic imagination, ensuring that the city of the future remains equitable and sustainable for the communities which inhabit it. That's quite a mouthful. That's, now, Vincent, it is. <laughs> before we look to the future and how the imagination shapes the civic society and civic structures that we live in and exist in. Um, let's look back and see how that imagination has shaped what we live in today. Um, can you think of any uh, concrete um, examples? or? Yeah, well, I suppose the, the lecture is, is really looking at um, the role of public art and we um, are surrounded by public art, some um, better than others, I would argue. Um, and so what I really want to investigate is how we move beyond public art merely being decorative and filling space. And the examples that usually come to mind are the works down at Docklands, which is the only part of Victoria, the state of Victoria, that has a percentage for art scheme where the developers of Docklands are, um, are required to install public art as part of any development. But, of course, what usually happens when you do that is that uh, the developers really just turn to their architects um, to make sure that that money is spent without giving much thought to what is actually being put there. So while we, we, we live in an area where, where we, uh, we do have public art in, in many locations, um, what I'm really con interested in is, well, how can we actually think more thoughtfully about what we, we put in public space um, so it moves beyond that and it actually becomes a, a role of informing and educating and creating communities where we acknowledge um, the spaces we occupy on a daily basis. Mm, and can you think of any examples, say, that have existed in Melbourne or, say, I mean, not in Melbourne where you're quite happy with a program that's implemented, maybe similar when the high-rise development was taking place? Is there anything that we can hark back when the Industrial Rev was happening that sort of helped shape... Well, I think, uh, I mean, Melbourne's littered with um, with grand monuments, so, you know, Burke and Wills monuments and all sorts of, of monuments. And um, while I personally find most of those things um, of their time and, and probably no longer relevant from a from purely a creative perspective, I mean, I think one example that um, does work, um, and regardless whether you're into sport or not, is... Um, what the MCG have done around the MCG by commissioning artists to um, produce sculptures of sports stars. And I think that's an example while we're, we're, we're merely celebrating sports stars, but it's being celebrated in the precinct uh, that matters. Mm. So it, it actually makes us understand um, and gives us a history of, 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 that, of that space, of that location and of the MCG mm. before you actually enter the ground. So I think that's a, an example of a, of a success where, as I said, whether you like sport or not, it's actually been done thoughtfully. I mean, had, um, 
had uh, uh, you know a sculpture of Dennis Lilly put in being put in Fed Square. Well, we've asked the question: Well, why would you put Dennis Lilly yeah. in Fed Square? But it makes sense to put it out of the MCG. So I sort of think that kind of logic is mm. really what I'm interested in. Yeah, okay. I feel like that logic definitely has fertile grounds at the moment, and is shared with a lot of people. There's been a lot of discussion around certain statues, and you mentioned Burke and Wills. There's been big contention about those statues existing and the placards that are put upon them, as it's sort of I don't know, it doesn't sell but informs a newcomer to the city of a one line or one perspective or one story really of history and definitely doesn't tell others. Um, Stan Grant also wrote a great um, article not long ago and that was in Sydney with I think under Captain Cook saying discovering Australia and that still stands. And there's been huge discussion around this and then on top of that there's actually a monument happening Around the corner from here, we had a guest on last week talking about a monument to the stolen generation and acknowledging that story and how important she was speaking from a level of involvement and how important to have a monument like that is to remind the community. So I really feel like you're on to something here. And at the public lecture, there's um, there's going to be, uh, you were telling me last night, 150 people are going to uh, appear and listen to you speak. Yeah. So um, uh, exciting! It's part of um, a, a partnership that La Trobe University have with the National Gallery of Victoria, where they're official learning partner over the summer period. And while the lecture is part of a summer school that we run, which is really geared towards our own students, it's an opportunity through that partnership to um, to bring the wider public and particularly the university community. So this is everyone from our existing staff and students through to our alumni and, and partners of the university to come to the NGV and um, hear about, in this instance, um, the notion of public art, but re- relating that back to the major exhibition that's on the NGV triennial. So oh, okay. um, what, what we hope... Yes, and uh, it sounds that sounds like an amazing exhibition. Well, I'm wondering, at its best, what can public art do? Um, look, I think at its, at its best, it, it fosters debate and it informs. And... I think of Rico Rennie's, um, the Melbourne-based Indigenous artist's um, work in Sydney where he, he decorated um, or he camouflaged the outside of the building in his um, traditional Indigenous sign and, and then had a, a neon sign over the top that says, always was, always will be. And I think while that's controversial and um, it, it really prompts people who walk past that space to think about, well, actually whose land do we walk on every day? So I, I think um, really great public art can be controversial, but controversial in a positive way, which is actually about addressing issues that sometimes we feel uncomfortable addressing. And I think that's what really great public art can do. Thank you very much for coming in and talking to us, Dr. Vincent Alisi. Um, we appreciate your time here at 3CR and wish you all the best in your public lectures um, throughout. Thank you very much. Um, all the best if you want to catch um, his lecture I think it has booked out but a good place to stay in touch with that is head to the NGV website or um, go to Latrobe's website and just a FYI for people the Indigenous warrior on the side of 3CR is Reco Rennie if you ever want to have a look as you're walking past the studios Um, it has been Wednesday breakfast on this uh, Valentine's Day that also happens to be your birthday and both our cousins' birthday, so obviously <laughs> yes, well, a popular day. Yes. I thought it was nearly going to be called Paddy's Day for a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you to all of our guests uh, that have come on the program this morning.
Yes, and uh, great to hear from uh, Jane Irene Keogh and her work on Manus Island and also the LEMC exhibition at uh, Footscray Community Arts. I really encourage you to go along. Great exhibition, great venue. Mm. Some good information coming from there and some great story. And we'd like to thank um, Dr Rose to talk about the Urban Agricultural Forum. Get along to that if you can. Get your fingers in the ground. And Loretta for coming in and talking about why it is so important to be and, part of... Uh, 3CR Radio. And it is Subscriber Week. Yes, and also I just don't want to leave out Emily Vanderstock, who told us about her citizen science project in northern New South Wales. And closing out the show, we just had Dr Vincent Alisi on the phone talking about public art and why it is important and the different angles around that. Up next, we have Stick Together. Thank you for your ears and happy Valentine's. And uh, remember to subscribe. <laughs> subscribe, stay alive. That, that's Nick. You're getting the blowing kisses. Blowing kisses. 3cr.org.au is the website again. It's also where you can find uh, the podcast and you can subscribe to the podcast while you're becoming a subscriber. Uh, it's $35 for um, pensioners concession or unwaged, $75 for waged, uh, and $150 for solidarity, but you can pay more if you're feeling very philanthropic.